Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 510, uh, and it's on page 1003 of your pew Bibles if you have one. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes away his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although, verse 8, he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today. And we thank you for who you are and what you have done. Father, you are Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. You are sovereign over all of creation. Your wisdom is unquestioned. Your power is unrivaled. Yet you are a God who is gracious and compassionate. And you have sent your Son, true God of true God, true light of true life, who came not as an angelic being to be marveled at, or a conquering king to be humbled by and submitted to, But you came as an infant, and you were held in the arms of your creation itself, knowing our limitations, knowing our temptations, knowing our suffering of living in a fallen world. Yet you were sinless. You did not succumb to the power of darkness. But you love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, we thank you. And Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, who has sent forth the Spirit who lives in the lives of his people. The Spirit that moves and unites our hearts today, this morning as we worship, as we gather together, and as we are separated. Father, we lift up our other brother from Neptune Baptist Church, Tom Barry, as he battles most severely this morning in the hospital with COVID. Father, we pray that you would strengthen his lungs, that you would strengthen his body to fight this uh, infection, this, uh, this disease. Father, that you would give the nurses compassion and wisdom, that you would give the doctors um, clarity in what is going on with his body, but most of all, that you would strengthen his faith, his faith in Christ, who is his only hope in life and death. Father, we lift up our brother. We lift up our brothers and sisters also this morning who are weak and weary, who are suffering. The mental anguish of living in the midst of a political turmoil, in a world that is not right, The pandemic at large, this is difficult. 
We pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with mental illness, depression, anxiety, fear. Father, we pray that you would strengthen and encourage their heart. May we, as brothers and sisters, not forget one another and encourage and love that we may strengthen weary knees and that the Christ in our heart may burn brightly to warm the Christ in their heart, that our faith may encourage theirs. Deliver them from their struggles, from their oppression, from their darkness. Give them joy that comes from you. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers. And Father, we thank you that you are praying even when we are not. And you are interceding to the Father when we are wayward. You are praying for us. God praying to God. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, the great High Priest. May we see him today and come to his gentle and lowly arms that we may find peace with God. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be continuing in our series, um, the Advent. Last week we looked at Jesus as prophet, this week Jesus as priest, and next week we'll be looking at uh, Jesus as king. But again, a disclaimer, typically we work through one passage of scripture and um, go through and how does that reveal to us the heart of God? How does it teach us to think? How does it change how we live? Um, this next, this series during Advent, we're going to be looking at uh, more of a systematic approach, a topical way that we look at the categories of one particular subject. And I could not possibly um, be able to communicate Christ as priest. So in a few weeks, Gil is going to preach on Christ, and he's going to, he's going to clear it all up. He'll, he'll cover any spots I've missed, and he'll clear it up for us. But I want to be able to look at Jesus as our priest, and what that means, and how that changes how we live and love and share the message of the gospel. But this morning, as we begin to look, one of the foundation or fundamental works of God is that he is a judge. Now, sometimes when we hear that God is a judge, that elicits um, struggles within us, attention, because we think almost judges, we don't want to be judgy, right? Uh, we somehow think that judges can be cruel move that. It's a new lapel and it's a little bit sensitive. Um, that judges can be cruel. They can be capricious and vindictive, um, almost as God is a judge and he exists to beat us into submission. That's not the God, the judge of the Bible. Then you have uh, another understanding of God who is a judge, that he is somehow morally indifferent, that he is an absent judge. If God is a morally indifferent God who turns his eye to, uh, turns a, a blind eye to corruption, uh, who is indifferent to moral wrong, then that is a moral per imperfection in our God. Because how could a good judge turn a blind eye to the atrocities of despots and dictators in our world, in our history? How could a good judge be apathetic to the innocent and the powerless and the weak who are abused and exploited? How could a good judge ignore the difference between evil and good in our world? A good judge, um, a biblical judge, is committed to judge the world with truth and righteousness. Leon Morris, in his Systematic Theology, puts it this way. He says, the judgment of God means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. And that's a good thing. Steve, if you could turn my mic just down a little bit, I'm getting a lot of feedback and it's giving me a headache. I want to be able to finish this. We're working out the kinks in this. This creates a problem with us. 
Because God's holy, righteous, and exhaustive judgment leaves all of us sinful human beings with a fundamental problem. We are not at peace with God. In fact, we are actually in, um, again, we're working against God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 puts it this way, and I like how Eugene Peterson in his message Bible translated it. It might be a little unusual the way you expect it, but I think he captures the essence. The problem, there's nothing wrong with God. The wrong is in you. Your wrong-headed lives cause the split between you and God. Your sins got between you so that he doesn't hear you anymore. Our fundamental problem is that we have been separated from our Creator. Our sins have left us in contention with God, not at peace with God. And that's the bad news of the Gospel. But take heart, that's not the end of the story. If you were the four words of the Gospel, God, man, Jesus' response, those are the first two. God, holy and righteous, judge of all that is good, creator of all that is um, good and beautiful and true, and man, though created in the image of God, has rather chose to live for our glory, and we have um, justly and deservedly so come under the, the punishment of God, because God must punish sin. Just like when we watch the news and we see perpetrators and murderers and people who hurt children and our blood boils because we know that wrong has been done and evil exists and we want something to be done. God is a good judge and he will deal with sin. But there is also uh, the good news of the gospel. Notice verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then come with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How is that even possible if we are not at peace with God? If we are in contention with God? If we sin and are selfish and we are stained and broken? How could we possibly come before an almighty, good and glorious and holy God? It's the good news of the gospel that says we can come before a holy God because we have Jesus as our faithful and true high priest. Because Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, we can live in his presence and we can enjoy peace with God. We, though, are blind to the ways of truth. We need a prophet, Jesus, who declares the way of God. We are guilty and sinful before God's judgment. We need a priest that brings us peace with God. And as we will see next week, we are captive to the sin that reigns over us. And we need a king to deliver us and protect us. So this morning, I want you to know this. Jesus is the true priest who secures peace with God for his people. Jesus is the true priest who secures peace with God for his people. How does he do this? His sacrifice for his people's sin and his prayers for his people's holiness. His sacrifice is for his people's sin and his prayers are for his people's holiness. Let's first, though, define what is a priest. A if a prophet is God's mouthpiece to his people, God's representative to his people, a priest is the people's representative to God. It's the people's mouthpiece up to God. We see in the Old Testament, the people feared God so much that they said, Moses, you need to go up to God on our behalf. You need to be our, represent, our representative, and you speak to God on behalf of us. And as the law of God all throughout the Old Testament shows that uh, priests offer sacrifices and they intercede for the people. Sacrifices uh, on behalf of their people, they offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of their people. And then also they intercede, they pray for their people that their sacrifices and offerings would be answered and they would walk in the ways of their God. 
This is not just simply the nuts and bolts of the Old Testament laws and uh, rituals and ceremonies and a lot of dead animals and blood. This is relevant and true and necessary for us today because like the people of the Old Testament, we need to be made right with God. We need peace with God. Something that without his grace eludes us. We can't do it on our own. And this is where the book of Hebrews comes in. Hebrews is actually a long, big, long sermon. And you thought my sermons were long. This is a lot longer. Um, But um, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, though we don't know who he is, he was steeped in the Old Testament. And he's writing to a people that are weary and they're tired. They have come out of Judaism, out of the ceremonies and the rituals and practices of the law, and they have come to Jesus. But it hasn't been easy, because as we see, sin is crouching at their door, and they are weary. It tells that they're struggling. They have watched as those who have come with them have given up and thrown up their hands and have gone back and deserted them. And they're suffering under great persecution and they're beginning to wonder, is this even worth it? Is Jesus worth following? Should I even care about this? Because it's really difficult and it's really hard. And uh, the author of Hebrews says this, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. It was difficult. It wasn't all rainbows and unicorns like the televangelists want to tell us. It's difficult. It's a journey. There's a reason why the metaphors of following Jesus are farmers and soldiers and athletes because there's, diff- there's um, resistance and struggle and pain. Sometimes that suffering was being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes it was having our brothers and sisters and those who are dear to us be treated that way and we suffered in solidarity. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property while they would worship Christ, those others would come and plunder and take their stuff since you knew that you, had a, you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. The things of this world were being taken from them. They were struggling. They were suffering. And Jesus says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage these believers, and what he does is he uses the symbolism of Old Testament law to be able to teach that. Because Jesus is a greater priest who is a true priest in the sanctuary of God's presence. He is the true priest serving in the real sanctuary, representing his people. Therefore, they cannot go back. So what are these Uh, activities that Jesus does? What are these uh, roles that Jesus does? What What is Jesus doing as a high priest? Well, first, we see that he has offered a sacrifice for his people's sin. The reason Christ came, and we have seen this in the book of Mark as we have gone through, was not for fanfare, it wasn't for power, and it wasn't for selfish indulgence. Jesus came to be a priest, A priest who would offer one final, complete, uh, once-for-all sacrifice that would satisfy the justice of God for the sins of his people. His sacrificial work was a substitute, it was a propitiation, and it was a reconciling sacrifice. Let's look at that first one, this sacrifice that was a substitute. Jesus is made as a high priest a substitute sacrifice. What sets Jesus apart is that um, as a priest of God, rather than offering the blood of sheep and goats, what did he offer? He offered his own blood. Rather than laying the life of a sheep or a goat on the altar, he laid his life down on the cross. 
In the Old Testament, God, by His grace, had given them a pattern, a form that the people of God would be able to receive His grace by uh, having an unblemished, healthy lamb die as a substitute for the sins of God's people. You can see this all throughout the book of Leviticus, uh, but I wanted to highlight one. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Book of Malachi talks about how perversion came in and they were offering diseased and weak and broken sheep and animals because they didn't take God's holiness seriously. And God is saying, offer an unblemished, a healthy, robust animal. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Symbolically, the sins of the person were transferred over to the animal and that animal died in place of the person by God's grace. But rather, Jesus, as a high priest, came, he offered his own life as a substitute for the guilt of his people an unblemished sacrifice. And not just a good sacrifice, a righteous, holy sacrifice. Because the life of Christ was righteous. He fulfilled the law. The law being to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus offered his life as a spotless sacrifice in the place of his people. He took the punishment. He was the substitute for their sin. But it wasn't just a substitute to get us off the hook, but it was a propitiation. And we have been dropping big $5 theological words lately, kids. If you can bust out propitiations, I'll put $5 in the uh, Lottie Moon jar in your behalf. Um, But Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. In other words, his death satisfied the law, the legal requirements for our sin. Jesus was a spotless, unblemished substitute who died. He died to pay a debt that he did not accrue, to satisfy a punishment he did not earn, to serve a sentence that did not belong to him. Jesus stood in the place of sinful people and took the fullness of their penalty that they deserve. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. Not a single drop of God's wrath remains for the people that belong to Jesus. Why? Every single drop of God's wrath for their sin was poured out on Jesus. 1 John 4 tells of this. It says, In this is love. It was made manifest that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Why? Because we were dead. In this is love. Not that we have loved God and we have done things for God and we have earned God's favor, but it's because we can't. God is a good judge. And there are no hung juries. There are no um, uh, loopholes. There are no evidence that's been withheld. He knows all. And He knows that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot stand before His holiness. Just as we as uh, human beings cannot go before the the, the holiness of the Son because we would be destroyed. The sun is completely unlike us and would consume us. We, as sinful people, cannot go into the perfect, awesome holiness of God. It would consume us. But God is a loving God. And you see, He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation, to satisfy the wages of sin for our sins, for all who belong to Jesus. The punishment of the Almighty Judge, who sees all and knows all, 
the punishment and the wrath, the good righteous wrath on every wicked deed, every cruel injustice, every prideful corruption, every self-seeking glory was laid on Jesus in full. Not mostly, 100% was laid on the high priest who offered himself not a goat or a sheep that cannot represent us, that cannot take a sin. Jesus himself laid his life down. This is why we sing the song in Christ alone. And this is a very controversial understanding, especially with this song. It says, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. Kids, that's what we talked about. Jesus didn't come as a conquering king. He didn't come as a big, strong, smart guy. He came as a babe, helpless, weak. The gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross as Jesus died. Look at this. The wrath of God. His good, his true, his righteous penalty on sin was satisfied. Why? Every single drop. Every sin that we have done and that we have not done, the good that we have not done, for not being who we are called to be or doing what we are called to do, every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Because Jesus is a good high priest, and because he offered his life, his righteous life, as a substitute for my sin, he satisfied the legal requirements. He didn't serve most of my sentence or some of my sentence to get me off the hook or give me a break. He took it all. As we sing, Jesus paid it mostly. Jesus paid it all. Jesus didn't simply take our place, though. He gave us a new place. He reconciled us from the dungeon to the throne room uh, as enemies of God to children of God. Notice uh, Jesus is also not only a, um, a substitute, not only is he a propitiation, but he is a reconciling sacrifice. Jesus changed our place our identities have radically changed. We went from orphans to treasured sons and daughters. We went from slaves to heirs of the master. We went from enemies to beloved friends of God. Christ appeared before God as the representative of his people, and he reinstated his people to the place where humanity belongs, in peace with God. His perfect sacrifice completely satisfied the punishment for his people. His perfect righteousness completely restores us to peace with God. Romans 5 talks about this. But God shows his love for us. Not that he dismisses, not that he pats us on the head as morally indifferent. Oh, no big deal. Not if he turns a blind eye. That would be wicked. It's like if somebody took advantage of somebody you hold very dear. And, and uh, you went to the hospital and held their hand as they had been exploited and, and beaten and taken advantage of. And the doctor casually walked in and said, no big deal, I forgave them. You would be uh, 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 horrified. It's not the world to define the love of God. It's God himself. For we have sinned against his holiness and his goodness and his beauty and we have marred our world and we have not honored him. But how does God show his love to us? When we were sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were still orphans, while we were still resisting God, Christ died for us. And now we have been justified. We have been declared righteous. We have been made up, uh, said they are at peace with God. 
and more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. We are being a right relationship and we are removed from the penalty we deserve. And then he continues, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by this life? More than that, we also rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. The Old Testament prophets entered the Holy of Holies with the blood of sheep and goats to present a sacrifice to God once a year, year after year after year. But it could never satisfy the wages of sin or make us righteous before God. That's why they did it year after year after year. However, Jesus one time he entered into the real sanctuary to the eternal presence of God and he brought his own blood, a perfect, righteous, all-sufficient sacrifice once for all, which truly brings peace with God and he doesn't leave. He's always in the presence of the Father as a perpetual reminder that these people belong to me and I am at peace with them and the Father says they belong to me. That's why we sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing room, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Ocean Park, if your faith is in Christ... If you trust in who he is and what he has done as prophet, priest, and king, you can sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Because when the father looks at the cross, he didn't see Jesus. What did he see? He saw your sin and he poured his wrath down on that sin. And now when the father looks at you today, he doesn't see your sin what does he see? He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' holy, perfect righteousness. And you have peace with God. Not because of what you have done or anything in you. Everything because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Who Jesus is and what he has done. Because Jesus is the true priest who secures peace with God for his people. Not only does his sacrifice cover the sins of his people, but his, he prays for the holiness of God. I think when we think about God being priest, we think of Jesus' act on the, on the cross, laying down his life, and we think somehow it ends there. Jesus' priesthood started at Calvary, but continues today. It started on earth, but it continued in heaven. When Jesus cried, it is finished, it had only just begun. When Christ, for Christ ascended into heaven and he took his rightful place at the right hand of the Father to serve as king. But the king who sits on the throne is also a priest. A priest in the presence of of, of the Father who continually makes specific requests and brings specific petitions before God on behalf of those who belong to him. There is not a moment when Jesus is not making intercession for his people on behalf of those he loves. He's not like us. When we're going to make some New Year's resolutions and by about January 4th, though probably three quarters of them We'll get distracted. We, we, we grow weary. We get overwhelmed. We grow tired. We don't have the continuing resolve. Only Jesus can continue the work that he has done. Why? Because he is the God-man. He is God and he is be able to bring simultaneously all the requests and hear the prayers and the cries of his people to know their tears, their joys, their, their yearnings, their desires. Because he is God, he is able to completely and thoroughly, without a moment's hesitation, without ever waning, he can hear those prayers and bring them to the Father. 
But because he is man, he can faithfully represent his brothers and sisters before Almighty God. And he knows. And he can do it in a sympathetic way because he knows our experience. He has walked in our shoes. But how does Jesus pray for us? What does Jesus pray for? He prays for our atonement. Our high priest entered the presence of God. Um, the high, pri high priest of the Old Testament entered the presence once a year, but Jesus perpetually stands in the presence of the Father. A continued reminder, Hebrews says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. They're not the real things. But Jesus has entered heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And as I said before, he stays in the presence of God as a constant reminder that our sin has been covered and has, um, Jesus has paid it all. Like the blood of the Passover lamb that was smeared on the doorpost, the wounds on Christ's hands and his feet and his side are a constant uh, testimony that atonement for our sins has been made and the wrath of God has been completely satisfied. It is the perpetual prayer of the high priest in the presence of the Father that our sin is gone. Jesus also prays in our defense. At the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty for the sins of his people, freeing them from the bondage of sin and death, much to the chagrin of the enemies of God. Satan, who loves darkness and disorder, constantly accuses the elect in effort to undo and undermine the work of reconciliation that Christ has accomplished on the cross. Jesus, Satan is called the accuser. There's the reason that the, um, the devil's advocate, because the devil's advocate always brings charges against the people. What if? Do you know about that? What about this? Have you heard this? Constantly accusing the people of God, the elect of God, the faithful, those are who are joined together by faith in God, constantly accusing them. He is the accuser of the brethren that Revelation 12 says. John says, and I heard a loud voice with heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. And notice this, what it, with the result. The accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. Satan, who knows you better than you know yourself, constantly goes before God and says, do you know about this? Do you know about this? What about this? Did you see that? Accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The reality is Satan's lies and deceptions cannot nullify or delegitimize the work of our high priest who stands in the presence of God. Jesus is our advocate. But the struggle is real. Because Satan not only accuses uh, you before God, but Satan and his servants accuse you. And they whisper in your ear lies and deceit. You're not good enough. You've done too much. If Jesus really knew who you are, he wouldn't love you. You're a loser. Nobody loves you. Satan accuses us day and night as we listen to the whispers of a guilty conscience and we sometimes fall in despair because rather than believe the promises of our high, king, high priest who has taken away our sin and reconciled us to God, we listen to Satan's half-truth and his lies and his manipulations. This is where the wisdom of our judge comforts us. There is no her, um, charge that Satan hurls at you or hurls at the judge of the universe that the judge doesn't know better or deeper or more thoroughly than he knows. And he chooses to love you despite yourself and save you not only from Satan, 
but save you from yourself. These are the promises of God. Who can separate us from the love of God? If God justifies, if God himself came and says, they belong to me, I have laid down my life, and I have reconciled them to the Father, who can condemn you? Not Satan, not yourself, not the things that keep you up when you beat yourself up at night. You did that again, you, you loser. Jesus Christ is the one to die. More than that, he was the race. We, who is at the right hand, who's interceding for us? Jesus is praying for you that you will not fail like he prayed for Peter when Satan wanted him to shift him like sand. Jesus, as a high priest, sits at the right hand of God and he knows your name and he knows your struggles and he knows your weaknesses and he knows the areas where you're weak and he prays for you that you will not fail. Jesus says, I love him. I love her. They belong to me. I have died to redeem them from all of their sins. See my hands. See my feet. I have satisfied the law. There is nothing that Satan can throw at you or at the Father that Jesus doesn't, hasn't known and laid his life down to bring you peace with God and to make you his own. I love the song we're, about, we're going to sing in a moment. When Jesus tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, the good, good judge of the universe who does not make mistakes is satisfied. To look on Jesus and say, they have peace with me. Because Jesus laid his life down as a substitute, as a propitiation, as a reconciling sacrifice, and he prays that his children would know and love and cling to that truth every day of their life. Not only does he pray for that, but he prays for our sanctification. And I know I'm running out of time, but this, I've got good stuff here. Jesus prays for our defense, that we would stand against the uh, wiles of the devil, but he prays for our sanctification, for our holiness, that we would be like Jesus. He's praying that we would be like him, holy and righteous, that we would be freed from the power and of sin, that we would grow in holiness, that we would uh, not feel the guilt and shame that was nailed to the cross, but realize our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Peace with God. He prays for our purity from imperfections and sincerities and superficiality. Excuse me. When we pray, we have imperfections and insincerities and superficialities before the Almighty Judge. But Jesus takes our feeble prayers and our distracted prayers and he makes them beautiful. And he brings them before the Father as a pleasing aroma to God. I mean, how many times have you said, I don't know what to say before God. I have no words. And they're incomplete. And we know ourselves well. And Jesus takes our prayers. He takes our faulty acts of service and our incomplete worship. And he brings them and he fuses them with his grace and his goodness and his righteousness. And he makes beautiful sacrifices and pleasing aromas from our incomplete, our um, sinful worship. First Peter talks about this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious because of Jesus. Like the living stones are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, incomplete sacrifices, yes. Insufficient, yes. But look, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're not worthy to go into the presence of an almighty God. You're right. But Jesus is. And he leads us into his presence. We are not on our own. We have a high priest who is praying for our imperfect offerings and consecrating our service to him. 
but he also prays for our salvation. The prayers of our high priest preserve us and protect us until the day of our salvation. Jesus knows every one of your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He knows your enemies without and within. He's walked in our shoes. He's looked through our eyes. He's experienced our experience. He has tasted the bitterness of our tears, and his heart is tender towards us. He is not formal and cold and stodgy, but his words and his heart and his gentle hands drip with sympathy and compassion for us. His prayers are continually on our behalf. His prayers stir the Holy Spirit who aids us in our difficulties and our trials and temptations. His prayers call down the infinite resources of God's mercy and grace. Why? Because our, heavenly, our high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses. In every respect, tempted as we are, far greater, far more difficulty. Why? We give up too easy. You ever, every day that you go on a diet, it gets harder and harder, right? Jesus knows the temptations yet without sin. And therefore, because of Jesus, we can have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Ocean Park, Jesus is a compassionate high priest who prays for his people that they may receive mercy and find grace in times of need. He is the true priest who secures peace with God for his people. He sanctifies his people, his, sacrifice, um, his sacrifices for his people's sin, and his prayers are for his people's holiness. Christ the prophet has promised that there is a coming a day when Christ, the conquering king, will return to judge the nations. He will vanquish his enemies. He will vanquish sin and death. His judgment will be fierce and it will be terrifying. Revelation 19 says this, for his mouth comes a sharp sword for which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and his thigh he has a name that's written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ the prophet declares to us, be forewarned. Those who spurn the warnings of Christ the prophet will despise the sacrifice of Christ the priest. They will face the lion-like judgment of Almighty God who comes with a sword from his mouth. And they will face the just wrath and punishment that's unfurled on their sin and rebellion, their self-love and their self-seeking. Yet the promise of God is this. There is also from that very king lamb-like tenderness to all who come to Christ the priests. Notice Hebrews 5, verse 2. Jesus, the true faithful high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he was, is beset with weakness. Jesus is a priest who knows our weakness. He knows our limitations. He knows our temptations. He has endured them all. Without capitulation, without compromise, and without defeat, he was sinlessly weak. Ocean Park, I want you to hear this. The heart of our high priest is gentle. He is gentle to the ignorant and to the lonely. Uh, ignorant and the weak, excuse me. And who are these people? Who are the ignorant and the weak? Are they the lowliest of the low of society? Are they the degenerates, the dirty, the filthy, the prideful, the weak? In reality, in the law of God that the, uh, the author of Hebrews is using, there is only two types of sinners. 
and two types of sins. The unwillful and the willful. The accidental and the deliberate. The ignorant, in verse 2, and the wayward. Christ deals gently with all sinners who come to him. And his promise is this, all who come to me, I will not cast you out. And he calls and he beckons and he pleads, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, downtrodden by sin, and I will give you rest. Because our high priest is gentle. He does not roll his eyes in exhaustion. He does not mutter under his breath, here we go again. He does not he act harsh and heavy-handed. He is gentle because he knows our weakness. Dane Ortland, in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, probably one of the best books I've read this year, talking about Hebrews 5.2, says this, and I'll quote, Consider what this means. When we sin, we encourage to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a diluted view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far deeper than we do. Indeed, we are, um, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Hebrews is not telling us that instead of scolding us, Jesus loves us. It's telling us the kind of love he has. Rather than dispensing grace to us from on high, he gets down with us. He puts his arm around us. He deals with us in the way that is just what we need. He deals gently with us. Ocean Park, our great high priest, is gentle. Come to him today, that his sacrifice may save you from the righteous judgment you deserve, and that his prayers may grant you the mercy and grace you need in the time of your struggle. Trust the promise that Jesus is the true priest who secures peace with God for his people. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We thank you that you are a faithful high priest who has satisfied the penalty of our sin and is praying to deliver us from the power of sin and will one day, because of his work, deliver us from the presence of sin when Christ the King comes. May we trust you today and every day of our lives. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.